Poetry doesn't ask you how old you are at the door, says Caroline Bird, reflecting on the fact that her first collection, Looking at Letterboxes, was published when she was aged just 15. Since then, Caroline has authored four more collections, won numerous awards, and been the official poet of the London Olympics. Great successes indeed, but in this conversation with Susanna V. Evans, recorded at Stanza Poetry Festival in 2019, she reveals that her poetry can also be aptly described by analogy with a frozen duck. This podcast is brought to you by the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Five collections, and the first one was when you were 15, and I mean that's remarkably and amazingly early. And I was wondering when you wrote your first poem. So, um, the first poem that I remember thinking was a poem uh, was when I was about 10, but before <laughs> then, I used to write these long thin columns in my notebook because I tried to write a diary you know and I'd write everything that had happened at school that day you know and uh, so and so killed a bee Harry and Jane got married and whatever <laughs> like whatever happens at primary school uh, and it, but it just wouldn't um, seem true somehow so instead I would then write these like dreamlike little pieces mm-hmm. so I think the, the, the facts never quite felt like the truth for me even from when I was really small and then when I was 10, I wrote a poem. This is so, it's so precocious. I wrote, I wrote a poem about a man who could only go out in the winter and a woman who could only go out in the summer. And they were in love. They could oh. never meet. <laughs> I know. I know. So, that's, that, so that was my first poem. Yeah, it was a real, real tragedy right from the off. But then when I was uh, 13, I uh, yeah, won the Foils Poet of the Award Prize. And the, and the prize for that was to go to an Arvon course, which is a week-long mm-hmm. residential rising course. And, and it was me and 14 <laughs> other uh, young people who also hid in their rooms and wrote poetry all the time. And it was this amazing parallel universe where that was an appropriate response to the world. And where no one ever stops you talking and went, okay, you're getting a bit heavy. And people wanted to have those you know, strange conversations. And, and even though they all are older than me, I was only 13, I just felt like, oh, I'm going to be able to survive this life now. Like, there's people in the world that will allow this to be a thing. And (laughs) then I went home and spent all the money that I'd saved up to buy a portable television. My dad used to sit the wire out of the TV. And uh, I spent all that money on poetry books instead. And I I didn't know it was good, so I just picked things with with good titles. I bought Trembling Hearts in the Bodies of Dogs by Selima Hill, The World's Wife, Carolyn Duffy, Howl, Alan Ginsberg. And I remember thinking, I could read Howl by Alan Ginsberg, right? But I can't watch Train Spotting. This is amazing. <laughs> I have access to all this joy and bitterness and rage and grief and yeah. lust. All those things that adults don't talk to you about. But poetry will. And poetry doesn't ask you how old you are at the door. Yeah, and after that I just wrote non-stop. And I, I also, from a young age, found it really hard to be alone in my own thoughts. Like, and I still do now. I just have to, I have to put a podcast on or a TV on or it's... I get sad really easily. So writing was a way of stabilising my mood as well. Mm. So I wrote most nights, you know, and most of it was absolute rubbish, but then there was enough in there that I was excited about in some way. Mm. And then I got the writer's, this is a very long answer to your question, but I got the writer's handbook, someone told me to get that, and I circled some places to send them <laughs> off to. I didn't know what was what. Yeah. One of the places was PN Review. And I didn't, I didn't know what they were. 
and I sent six poems off to them and I got a letter back within about two weeks from Michael Smith saying, can you send us all the stuff you've ever written? I mean, my memory of it felt like it happened in the space of like three weeks or something. Mm. But I also got a reply from another magazine, which I'm not going to tell you the name of, which was handwritten and told me that those th- these poems were unfit for publication. And so I was so lucky to find an editor who saw something and went, actually, just carry on doing yeah. that. Obviously, get better, but, but carry on. <laughs> yeah. Because you're like wet cement at that age. And most people don't get told that what they're doing is worth anything. Mm. And, you know, I will be like forever grateful for that mm. because mm. I needed it and I didn't know. Yeah, some of the poems that I have really enjoyed reading, uh, reading your collections recently, are the long poems... Um, which are often very like zany and vivid and very very funny as well, and like some of the lines are just brilliant. So um, I was thinking particularly of um, the poem called "The Lady with the Lamp" yeah, oh, yeah. from "Trouble Came to the Turnip," which has a brilliant image of a woman tossing her shoes into the sea and then feeding half a croissant to a seagull. Yeah. <laughs> and then yeah, another line I particularly liked was "She stood naked in the moonlight like a swan," which I just think is brilliant, <laughs> and a bit about a period and the lines go that night she started her period and left a small saucer of blood on the balcony for the mosquitoes well firstly it's funny and secondly it, it reminds you of, of um, other writing about periods like um, Helen Charman has written a poem where she describes I think she uses the word gorgeous like waking up to red sheets it used to be a sort of a shameful thing and then, and then it becomes this gorgeous thing yeah and, and I was wondering if those lines when you wrote them or think about them now, if they felt taboo at all or political or just just wow. straight up funny or... I wrote that poem when I was 18. <laughs> uh, but uh, I'm really interested in the idea of trying to get disqualified from an idea. So you get, you, you, you find what you think is the poem and you keep writing until you reach the final line or what you think is the final line and you go, actually, I'm not going to stop here. I'm going to go past the finish line. Mm-hmm. I'm going to go over the motorway mm-hmm. into the forest until mm-hmm. I hit a tree. So with the the lady in the lamp poem, you set you set up a structure of, and a character who is doing certain things that have a, a a tone to them or a style to them or something. And then you get to where the end of the poem should be, but then you just keep going. So then then you automatically have to have to up the stakes because you have to write into the unknown. And that's when you, I find myself writing about. People leaving sources of blood out for the mosquitoes, you know. I've got a new poem called Nancy and the Torpedo, which is about um, a couple that find a, a, a dud torpedo in the middle of the forest. And I had no idea why I was writing about it. I just kept on get, kept on going. And eventually, you know, they were straddling the torpedo, having sex with the torpedo. All kinds of things were happening because because I had to I had to push it, just push it, and and. And then you find something truthful. I never ever think about taboos. I never consciously think about politics, to to be honest, because I never think about anyone reading it when I'm writing it. I just am trying to, every time, do something slightly different in the privacy of my own imagination and interest myself, like not bore myself, you know? And then once that first draft or that fourth draft is done, then you can kind of hesitantly start to open the door of the oven trusting that maybe maybe it won't sink if you release it upon the world. Um, and then I can start thinking about the poem in context of how other people might receive it. But it's kind of not... 
not in my mind to begin with, and I'm kind of I'm glad about that because otherwise I I think I would censor myself or I would think that things had had some kind of greater meaning than they did rather than just being about playing yeah. with the things that matter to you most. Like you take your pain and you start juggling with it. And because you've written um, so much, are there a lot of poems that don't make it into your books? Oh yeah, of course, like hundreds. Yeah. And then there's poems that I'll have banged my head against for like a whole year and then finally realise, oh wait, the poem is the first 14 lines and this whole other four pages of it is absolutely nonsense. <laughs> um, and then there's some poems that they just kind of pour out and it's not that I don't work on them but I'm able to, to work on them non-stop for three days and stay up till four in the morning and definitely know I'm going to get to the finished product. Right, that that's magical when it mm-hmm. feels like that. And then there's the poems where they might be really short, but each line is just like <laughs> pulling a, a tooth out, <laughs> your back tooth out. Yeah, um, but but somehow something keeps you connected to it. It's a bit like um, it, for me, it feels like each poem is like m- meeting a new person when I'm writing it, and occasionally there'll be someone that you'll just click with immediately. And you don't even need to ask them any questions, you just seem to know who they are, even though you've never met them before. You know, and occasionally you'll get a poem like that. And then there's, then there's the people you meet and you're like, okay, there's something about you, but I don't know what's going on. And we're probably gonna have to talk for at least, you know, a year off and on. And some days I'm gonna think you're awful, and you know. You know? And, it, and it's kind of, it's like, it's a relationship. Mm. And, and it's always new with each poem. That's why, you know, when people ask that question like, how long does it take to write a poem? It's unanswerable. And and something that you were talking about actually with um, so that stands a poetry festival. Um, and you were talking about um, James Tate. You were saying some very interesting things, talking about the idea of amnesia and sort of a necessary thing about writing poetry being a kind of forgetting about the world, yeah. how it is, and then also relating that to what James Tate mm-hmm. does. And you were talking about poetry as as being something that isn't sort of providing knowledge, but more kind of opening you up to mystery. And I wondered if you could just say a little bit about that again. The two questions that they ask in schools a lot are, what does this poem mean? And what do we think the poet is saying? But I'm interested in the idea that, what if you write a poem precisely because you're not able to say whatever it is? Mm. Um, It's like, I can't speak to you, but take this poem instead. What if poems are about that wordlessness and what if by the end of reading a really great poem, you should feel like you know less than you did before you started it? Like somehow it has inserted a mystery into your mind rather than a clarified one. And that it, you unlearn the world just that little bit so that when you look up from the poem, you encounter the world again. So it's, like, it's about the process of unlearning in order to encounter. Because the reason we get bored with life is we start feeling we know it. I like poetry that yeah, gives words to the wordlessness, but without simplifying it. You know, I think if you can paraphrase a poem, then there's no kind of no point writing it. Mm-hmm. I think if you read a poem and you instantly go, oh, that means that, that means that, that means that, that means that, is dead mm-hmm. on the page. Mm-hmm. Just like if you encountered a person and you knew everything about them and why they did everything, well, that wouldn't be a person, would it? That's not what life is. Life is motion and, and mystery. And you don't stand in front of the ocean and go, but what does this mean? What is the ocean trying to say? Right? 
And I don't know why we're so obsessed with with wanting to decode poetry when actually, like, there's so many things in the world we can't decode, and that's you know ninety eight percent of my life I don't understand. So it makes sense that I would want to read things that don't make sense that speak to that ninety eight percent. You know. Yeah, I think I remember reading, I think it was the introduction to a Faulkner book, and it talked about there was a woman who was a dancer, and she did this incredible long, hour-long plus dance, and someone came up at the end and said, what did the dance mean? And and she said, well, I just did it, you know, yeah. it was, that was, that was the meaning, that the dance was the thing, that was, exactly, that was it. And, um... One thing that I've been thinking about a lot at Stanza this year is, is just humour and poetry, and, and your poetry is very funny and it has made me laugh. Do, do your poems make you laugh as well, I um, No, they definitely don't. <laughs> uh, for me, the more pain that I'm in, or the more pain that's in the poem, the funnier it is, generally. And it's not because I'm taking whatever it is lightly, it's precisely the opposite. opposite. It's like if the sand is too hot, you can't stand, just stand on it, you have to jump from foot to foot or if or if somebody's really intense you can't just look someone in the eye the whole time and for me humor is a way of standing on a painful subject matter in a way i can bear Mm. and also i find it odd that we think humor and tragedy are two separate Mm. places when actually they are completely intertwined you know, constantly. I had a friend whose mom died, and um, she can't remember being told that her mom died. She just was then suddenly insane to reason. She was looking uh, to buy some dinner, and she looked and thought, well, "I can't get a chicken. That seems too normal. I can't get a turkey. That seems like a celebration." And so, and then she found herself at home, sitting at her kitchen table with a massive, like, frozen duck on the table. She's like, "I'm not gonna cook a duck. What am I? What am I doing?" You know. And then she burst into tears. Yeah. And Often, yeah, that's that's the juxtaposition, isn't it? We're we're alone and we have a huge frozen duck on the table, and it's funny, and it's absolutely tragic too. Yeah. yeah. And um, and so you know, I I try to 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 capture the the richness of the feeling, rather than just one strain of it. Yeah. There's also a thing about with humour where you can kind of put the reader at ease mm. and then you can really punch them in the face once they've <laughs> leant forward which also feels very much like like life yes, yes. <laughs> doesn't it doesn't it and so but I always I, I get um weirdly hurt I think when people think that or I just write, I write funny poems you know because I because for me it always comes from a painful place I want people to be able to feel both of it, mm. both both mm. things, but but often people mistakenly think you can't make a joke about something that means everything to you. Mm. So uh, yeah, a slightly different question. Um, you've you've talked about your work and other people's work on um, radio before for the BBC, um, most recently with Roger McGough for BBC Poetry Please. Yeah. Um, and I was wondering how important it is for you to have that sort of. I suppose connection with with listeners and people who listen to radio and sort of talk about poetry in in a public sense. Well, I mean, the radio stuff is relatively n- new in terms of doing that quite a lot. Um, but I absolutely love talking about poetry, <laughs> <laughs> and I and I and I love teaching. I love teaching workshops, and I teach teach teenagers and adults, and also I'm constantly trying to articulate my process 
and I'm also constantly trying to change what my process is. <laughs> so, so it's like every year, um, uh, it's like having a syllabus that you then throw out the window and go, well, that was all rubbish. Let's start again. And, uh, and, and so I, there's something about, yeah, talking about poetry and f finding ways to talk about it poetically as well, rather than analytically, which somehow feels like a contradiction. I, I am just incredibly, like evangelical about, about po poetry. I think because I remember that feeling of being 13 and, and thinking, yeah, this, I'm going to be able to survive if I do this. And, and you've also, you've also um, written plays. Could you tell me a bit about that? Yes, um, so I'm currently writing a play um, about the life of Ellen Wilkinson, who's one of the first female Labour MPs. And but for me, writing a, for Northern Stage, for me, writing a play is is, is really different. It, it allows me to um, draw upon other people's feelings, <laughs> um, memories of things, and and ideas, and I can zoom out from something. If if I was writing poetry all the time, I think I would go full fully mad, <laughs> because it requires such sitting in the reality of an emotional situation. At all times, this is why it makes me cross when people talk about. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent. When people talk about um, poetry as therapy, because it's like, no, it's terrible therapy. <laughs> Often it makes you makes you wallow in things you should have moved on from years ago, and makes you deliberately go out on thin ice. But but plays are much bigger animals, but they're also even more at a distance from what you're talking about. But the thing that I think connects them is this idea of the unspoken. So if you've got three characters in a scene and all of them are wrong, but the truth is somewhere in the middle. But if you, if you, if you talk about the truth, it's going to disappear, it's going to ruin it. Or maybe we could hear a few poems. I have picked out three. Okay. Um, one from your first collection, Looking Through Letterboxes. Okay. Um, there were lots that I kind of wanted to ask you to read, but I've gone for uh, a piece of stained glass in a lonely church. Oh, interesting. Okay. <laughs> Yeah, I've worked on that on that first album course actually when I was thirteen. I'm not, I don't think I've read this out loud before. <laughs> a piece of stained glass in a lonely church. I hate the way they see right through me. Beyond my dark tinted humour, beyond the fact that I am the glass of a saint's eye. They can tell I'm not religious. A rebellious little snippet of a window, trapped between transparent friends, forced to eat, sleep, and drink these walls. Opaque, big old Christian bricks. Happy days, eyeing up children with stones, hoping they'll chuck them. But what I want to know is, will I go to hell for wishing to be soundproof? Double glazed. So the next poem is, is from Watering Curtain, and it's called The University Poetry Society. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long one, isn't it? It is a long one. Right, okay. <clears throat> and this is, um, I have to do this in character, really. This is... The University Poetry Society, a tract hopefully designed to offend almost all aspiring laureates. Come to the University Poetry Society. Pull up a poof. A girl with Catholic guilt will take your name. Post drinks, there'll be readings from the floor. Don't say open mic. We're not in Camden. And don't jump around like those performance plebs who speak from the gut in their urban dives. Use an Elizabethan voice. Lift your nose like a prince about to spurt phlegm. That's right. This month's theme is creation, so the book of Genesis is an obvious inspiration, or the ancient Greek muses. Serious verse is appreciated. Last week a boy read a poem about slush puppies. Miranda called security. 
I know your type, calling rap music poetry, praising honesty above excellence, squiggling song lyrics with skateboarders outside prisons, making it fun. That won't impress us here at the University Poetry Society. I am published too, The Palindrome of Paradise, an educated yet oddly titillating work about a dyslexic monk written entirely backwards. After your reading, I'll run my regular session, Hanging with the Greats, where I pretend to be Lord Byron in this wig. I've got more flair than most public schoolboys. I've let train barriers wearing a kimono, had my fair share of fanny, mixed a white Russian, so you can't shock me with your caustic tales of sexual deviance. I've peeped inside a job centre. I'm hip to the working class. I would simply dispute the fascination of such things. Personally, I think poetry should elevate us above the mundane. Good God, if shop assistants start reading poetry for pleasure, then surely we as an institution have failed to maintain the vigorous intellectualism of our art. If we listened to you, we'd be overrun by dinner ladies and hod carriers asking us to explain complicated metaphors, drawing moustaches on the portraits of our most eminent scholars, soiling our antique chairs with their enormous pocketed coats. No, I say, I will not endure it. I'd like to end the evening with a poem I wrote for my sister. As a toddler, I pet-named her Anne of Cleves, after Henry VIII's unsightly fourth wife. I regret it now, but kids will be kids. Inverted Dreams, by Clarence Sharpenwell. Thoughts, citrus, antiseptic, bony thoughts, are cracking like ice on the windowsill of my melancholic mornings. The tulips are crying, sister, rusticated from their spring term. Oh why, oh why, do you persist on meeting that woman? Are you a lesbian, sister? Do not fiddle the illicit harp of destiny, for her music will be twangy. Also, Mother will have a nervous breakdown. Thank you so much for coming. Miranda has provided nibbles in the foyer. I think we even have Bombay mix. Risqué. Yeah, and then, um, so in these days of prohibition, there are actually quite a few I'd like you to read, but, but the one I've gone for um, is um, patient intake. Oh, sure. Yeah. Um, because I enjoyed the sort of sensory switch-arounds in it. Yes. And it, the poem sort of makes you feel the things that you're... So when the poem asks, can you feel the blood in your thumb, you yeah. have the sort of self-consciousness suddenly about your... You, yeah. you know, it sort of puts you... It's interesting because that poem came from... Uh, I was in rehab in my early 20s and they give you a, a patient intake questionnaire when you get there and full of these kind of horrifically simple questions when you're not feeling remotely simple. And one of the questions... For example, was, you know, have you ever experienced a psychotic episode? And I went back to the room and I translated the questionnaire into poetry. So, have you ever, have you ever experienced a psychotic episode became, have you started to look at pigeons like they know something? And then I found that in a notebook years later. And, uh, and that's how I wrote this poem, you know. Patient intake questionnaire. Do you taste pepper whilst eating ice cream? Do sandwiches appear intricately designed? Do you think of waterfalls when lighting a match? Have you started to look at pigeons like they know something? Do you think about your chin when you are kissing? Can you feel the blood in your thumb? Do your eyebrows feel like stickers? Do you look twice at your name on a letter? Does your hair hurt? When barefoot, do your shoes feel too tight? Can you sense the tiny holes in the cotton of your shirt? Do you peel bananas fearfully in case there is no banana inside? Does the ceiling occasionally ripple? Has your pillow developed a strange echo? Does your neck feel like a bone? 
Do you hear sex noises through the wall when standing in a field? Thank you. <laughs> and thank you for meeting with me. Thanks for listening to this podcast from the Department of English Studies at Durham University. Now let us hear from you. Search for Read Research English at Durham on social media and discuss the latest research news, events and literary insights with our community of readers, thinkers and writers. Thank you.